going to begin this morning with a little paragraph from a book that we have in the foyer. It's available to you this morning. It's a $10 donation if you'd like to help us cover the cost. If you don't have $10 or if you want to pay us back or if you just want to take one for free uh, and you'll read it, you're welcome to. For the next three weeks, starting today, we're going to begin uh, a very simple series. We're just calling Rejoicing in Christ. We are going to be back in Revelation, uh, picking up where we left off in chapter 4 in a in a few weeks, but we're just going to spend a few weeks looking at Christ uh, together to end out the summer, and uh, Michael Reeves' book would be a good companion for you. In that book, he says this in his introduction, he is not a mere topic, a subject we can pick out from a menu of options. Without him, our gospel or our system, however coherent, quote, grace-filled, or, quote, Bible-based, simply is not Christian. It will only be Christian to the extent that it is about Him. And then what we make of Him will govern what we mean by the word gospel. Reeves continues, I'm going to dare to say, in fact, that most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting and marginalizing Christ. That is, that despite all our apparent Christianness, we fail to build our lives upon the rock. Friends, Guess what is at the center of your idea about Christianity? Furthermore, what is your idea about what is at the center of everything that exists? The Bible makes a very bold claim that Jesus is at the center of every and all things that exist. That Jesus is at the center of all things. Because of this, there is no boasting too loudly about him. There is no thinking too highly of him. Or there is no singing too wholeheartedly about him. Today, we are going to spend time looking at this narrow subject that Christ is the center, not only of the faith referred to as Christianity, but of all things in existence. And after that, we'll consider if Christ is at the center of all things, what exactly is at the center of Christ? What is Christ about at the center of all things? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning. We trust that this, your word, that we are giving attention to here is, as you say, sharper than a double-edged sword, 
able to pierce as deep as dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, making known the motives of men's hearts. Father, would you help us know our own motives today by the preaching of your word. Help us not only to know Christ, but to know ourselves in light of Christ. Father, in all the ways that we need to repent from sin and turn away from things that are not central in the world, would you help us? Father, in all the ways that we need strength and encouragement to continue persevering in faith in Christ, would you help us? By your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Our text today is what Marilyn just read for us, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And I just want to begin by walking through that passage and just look at all of the alls in this passage. The expansive allness to Christ's oversight, sovereignty, and authority. Look at what he says first in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the image and the firstborn. What does it mean for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God? In 1954, an artist named Graham Sutherland was commissioned to paint a full-length portrait of Sir Winston Churchill on the occasion of his 80th birthday. And Churchill wanted it to maybe be his final, most regal, permanent portrait. But the portrait proved to be far from what Churchill desired. It showed him slumped over a simple wooden chair bearing a quizzical scowl surrounded by bleak and wintry tones. Churchill thought it made him look like a down-and-out drunk who had been picked up out of the gutter, he said. Ironically, Miss Churchill allegedly confessed it was really quite alarmingly like him. The painting was nonetheless shipped away to their house in the countryside. I think we all understand what this means when it says he, image, he is the image of the invisible God. He is what God looks like. He's the icon is the word here. He's the picture. He is the display. He's God in flesh. Whatever God is, is invisible. Christ is in person. And he is not only that, he is the firstborn of all creation. He's the older brother to all creation, if you will. He ranks higher than any other in all creation, in all the family, so to speak. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus is the purpose of all creation. He's the means and the purpose for all creation. I don't know what picture you had of, of, of Jesus in your mind, if you have some felt board Jesus from when you were you know, a, a kid or if you, like me in the church I used to work at, you have Jesus with long hair playing a guitar. Think about what this is saying about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. You see this phrase over and over? All things were created through him and for him. We could break this down further into three-part sermon or even three sermons. All things are by, one, through, two, and for Christ. 
All things by, through, and for Christ. John says it like this in John 1, 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not made anything that was made. Jesus is not creation. He came into his own creation. Look what he says in verse 16. Heaven and earth, all things were created for him, by him, and through him. Things in heaven and earth, the the place that we're in, the heavenly places, all created by, through, and for Christ. The physical places, the spiritual places, by, through, and for Christ. What does he say next? The visible and the invisible. The visible and the invisible. The things that you can see, by, through, and for Christ. The invisible things that you cannot see, by, through, and for Christ. I don't know how you feel about UFOs or UAPs and that whole world. I've, a friend of mine has recently gotten me on to uh, some documentaries and some uh, podcasts and things like that. It's crazy what is going on. The United States just put out a, a UAP report. We're not calling them UFOs anymore because we're not even sure that these objects that have uh, been witnessed or recorded by F-15s uh, are even flying. We don't even know what they're doing. So we quit calling them flying objects and we've called them, what, what's the word, UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. We don't even know if they're flying. I think this creates all kinds of questions about the world. It doesn't bother me too much. All the invisible things are by, through, and for Christ. This brings to my mind Mark chapter 1. When Jesus begins his ministry in Mark 1, he calls his disciples. He goes into Capernaum. He starts preaching in the synagogue. And who's one of the first people to recognize and say out loud who Jesus is? It's the demons. We know who you are, O Holy One of God. The invisible spiritual realm knows him well, and they fear and they cower at him. Demons do. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authority. The ESV Bible is helpful here, saying Paul uses the current Jewish terms for various ranking of angels here, although he doesn't give us those rankings in the New Testament. Paul refers to the spirits, as it were, four more times in the book of Colossians in this letter, showing here in this place that there's no sphere, no dimension, no realm, no rule, no crown, no throne, no throne, be it spiritual, angelic, or demonic, that was not created by, through, and for Christ. All things by, through, and for him. Abraham Kuyper summarizes it this way. He says, Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be sealed off from the rest. And there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Friends, we can ask the why questions about everything. Everything. Why? Why? Why is the world like this? Why is the world created like this? Why is my life like this? Why am I put here? Why is there a heaven? Why is there an earth? Why is there a hell? All things by, through, and for Christ. In verse 17, Paul continues, and he is before all things. 
Like Jesus said about Abraham in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, how do you think the Jews responded to that when Jesus told them, but before there was Abraham, there was me? Oh, Jesus, that is so funny, making age jokes. No, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because to say that before Abraham was, I am, is to take that Old Testament phrase that God used about himself, I am. You want to call yourself I am? That's calling yourself God. Everybody get your rocks. But that's what Jesus says about himself. And what Paul says about himself, he is before all things. He is prior in time. Pro in that sense. All things. And in verse 17, he holds all things together. And in him All things hold together. What keeps the world together? Paul is saying that at the center of existence and matter is not merely a something, but a someone. Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it like this, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How? How in the world could Jesus, born of Mary and Nazareth, Uphold the universe. Just look down another verse to verse 19, Colossians 1, 19. We'll come back to 18 in a moment. For in him, Paul says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It means that all God is, Christ is. All that is in God is in Christ. The wholeness of what makes God, God, is what makes Christ, Christ. T.F. Torrance captured it like this. He says, there is in fact, this is so helpful to me, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. It's not like there's Jesus and if we could peek back behind him, we'll see what God's really like. No, he is the image of the invisible God. And he's preeminent in everything. Verse 18, go back a verse He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Maybe you've heard this in a movie or read this in a book, this phrase, your preeminence. It means that Jesus has all authority for everything in every place that exists. In raising from the dead, Jesus is first firstborn from the dead, and he is first in rank and highest in authority. He's preeminent in everything. And these are Jesus' last words in Matthew chapter 28, the last words in the Gospel of Matthew, that is, when he charged his disciples. He began the charge, the Great Commission, by saying, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Friends, some of these words and these concepts about invisibility and preeminence and creation and eternity, we've only mentioned them and briefly defined them in in passing. We haven't even begun to unpack all that they mean to us in the world. But but look back through and just see how Paul is intentionally layering all of these alls on top of each each other in order to make one great point about Christ. It's like Paul just can't find another way to say it. He just wants to keep saying it. Look, verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. 
all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Can you think of another all? Are there any more things that Paul possibly left out? Your garage? Your backyard, your dirty clothes, hamper, I don't know. It's all things. All the things. I recently visited a dear friend in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And that dear friend is married to Andrea. And just before I visited them in Tuscaloosa, Andrea's wife, uh, Andrea's mother, excuse me, had passed through for a visit. And while there, Andrea's mother baked a pie particularly for my friend Michael. And the pie is called Texas buttermilk pie. When I took the first bite, I tasted in color for the first time, okay? I knew immediately this pie was gonna be a part of the rest of my life. Not just this pie, but many, many pies to come. Fairly immediately, I messaged my wife and I said, can you please reach out to this dear soul and get this recipe so we can have this at home. Andrea messages Colette the recipe. Colette goes to the store, buys the ingredients that Andrea sent her, came home, and we actually kind of got things moving around. This was a few weeks ago, and we decided, let's wait to make that pie. And then before we ever got to start making it, Andrea, I hope she can, we can still be friends after this, Andrea sends another text message to my wife and says, I forgot one ingredient. Anyone want to guess the ingredient? Buttermilk. (laughs) She forgot to put buttermilk. So we had no buttermilk for the recipe. It's silly to think about, but I wonder if some of us might be trying to do Christianity without Christ. He is the preeminence in everything. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. Friends, don't let ourselves try to bake some religion with things of the world and exclude Christ. Of course, this ingredient illustration falls apart a little bit. We might think about it like this if we're not careful that You know, we put in things into a recipe to to make up religion, and we need to put in our own works. We need to put in church attendance. We need to be nice to people. But the illustration even kind of falls apart because what is really going on in the world is that we're all ingredients in Jesus' kitchen. We don't make pies and put Jesus in our little religion stuff, it's His world. We're just in it. Our lives are on loan, having been created by him and through him and for him. Our ideas of self-right need to be checked when we come to the Bible. Do not believe some worldly version that I in the world am free to do whatever I want in the world with no consequence whatsoever. Don't buy that. 
Don't think it. Don't believe it. Don't be tricked into it. We have all been created by, through, and for Christ. We're in his world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought about this when the Nazis were breathing down his neck in World War II. And began, World War II began before Bonhoeffer could complete what he believed was going to be his life's work. It's now been published under the title Ethics. The Reich forbade Bonhoeffer to speak publicly or to publish any kind of written work his last two or three years before his arrest and his martyrdom. So Ethics as we have it was first published by his student Eberhard Bethge in 1949 after portions of it were retrieved from a hiding place in Bonhoeffer's garden. Other parts of the work, presumably lost forever, had been confiscated by the police before Bonhoeffer's arrest on April 5, 1943. With the Reich and the Nazi regime threatening him and eventually taking his life, Bonhoeffer was thinking and writing about Christ. Do not be mistaken that his book about ethics is some kind of philosophical moralism about ethics in the world. It's about Christ. In his book, he says this, the world like all created things, is created through Christ and with Christ as its end and consists in Christ alone. He says to speak of the world without speaking of Christ is empty and abstract. The whole world is relative to Christ no matter whether it knows it or not. Bonhoeffer looked Nazism in the face, that great expression of the darkness and the inner sin of mankind, and proclaimed, you are relative to Christ. That is to say, whatever you are, whatever you will be, Whatever power you have, whatever power will be taken away, however you will be judged for all eternity is relative to one man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The whole world is relative to Christ. Have you yet come to be amazed by this? Have you come to wrestle with this? And it's immensity in your soul and in your mind. That all the world is relative to Christ. Oh, friends, the world is not ours. We're not on our own in that sense. Everything we have is on loan. We've been created by, through, and for Christ. Friends, there is a great gravity in this message. A weightiness is this how you think about your life? Is this how you've been making decisions last week? This morning? That I'm not my own. But I've been created by, through, and for Christ. How does this settle with you? Does the idea of it make you nervous? Fearful? Does it sound confusing? I want to take some time now to consider what is at the center of Christ. 
Christ is the authoritative, creative head of all creation. What's in Christ? What is central to what Christ is doing? What's the why answer to everything that Jesus is doing? Look in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 19 and 20. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think about all of those alls in creation. And then there's one more. The reconciliation to himself, God, of what? All things. I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of John for a moment. Go to John chapter 2. And we're going to flip through some passages in John. And just try to see how in the narrative of the gospel of John, and all the gospels for that matter, we see Jesus' purpose as Paul states it. What's he here? What's at the center of Christ? What's he here for? What did he come to do? We do not have time this morning to give context for all of these, but I think you'll see as we kind of mention each of these verses along the way that John is picking up on kind of a progression of what Jesus was doing in his life. Look first at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 puts you on page 887 if you're in your house Bibles. John chapter 2, verse 4. This is the wedding at Cana. Jesus has been asked to turn water into wine. Just look at John chapter 2, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not your permission to be sarcastic in a rude sense. My hour has not yet come. Early on in John, Jesus asked to do a miracle, and he, he says a phrase that's going to show up. My hour has not yet come. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 28 to 30. John chapter 7, verse 28 to 30. Jesus here is in the temple. He's proclaiming what he has previously taught in the temple. He proclaimed, chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Verse 30, John adds, So they were seeking to arrest him. The Jews wanted to arrest him. But John says no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's an hour that's building through John. This is not it in John 2. This is not it in John 7. There's an hour coming. Go to John chapter 12, verse 20 to 24. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 24. The feasts referring here, referred to here as the Passover. Jesus come into Bethlehem for the Passover meal. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 24. This is Jesus' last trip into Bethlehem. 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, let the reader understand, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So did you see the transition? The hour has not yet come. My hour is not here yet. Now the hour has come. Look next at John 17, the last passage in John for this. This is referred to as the high priestly prayer. You can see in the next chapter heading in verse chapter 18, the, the, the subtitle there is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus probably in your Bibles. This is the last prayer in John before Jesus is arrested, which is going to lead him to his death. Look what John says when he begins his prayer to God. What Jesus says, John 17, 1 through 5, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, this is right before his arrest and betrayal, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. It's clear the events that he's speaking about in this hour. Look what he says. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Does that sound familiar? That you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having completed or accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Look at verse five. And now... Now, in this hour, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You ever notice this in Jesus' prayer? Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed in this hour. All the glory that is God's glory, all the glory that I had with you before the world even existed, in this hour, God glorify me with that glory. All the glory of all the alls from Colossians 1. Glorify me with all that glory in this hour. And what's going on in this hour? Jesus is praying, God, we're here. Let the sun shine at its full strength. I've accomplished the works that you had for me to do, which glorified God. But his ultimate, God-glorifying, God-shining work is where? On the cross. Having accomplished all the work he gave me to do, glorify me in and through the cross with all my pre-creation glory. The great glory and the center of Christ is not just his 
nature and what he's like and all of his authority and all of the all things that he's sovereign over and has created, but even more so that he has come down to the cross to die for sinners, for enemies, for those deservedly destined to hell because we're rebellious against God in our own sin. He, he went to the cross to redeem those who were opposed to his kingdom and bring them back to God. John Stott says this, he says, despite the great importance of his teaching and his example and his works of compassion and power, none of these were central to his mission. What dominated Jesus' mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. At the very center of Christ is the cross. Him dying to do away with sin forever. Friends, this is what is inviting us into Christ, this great authority, the great center of all things, that at the center of Christ and his purposes are the reconciliation of his own enemies, of sinners like me and you, back to God in forgiveness. Friends, what wrongs have you done in Christ's world? In which ways have you sinned against God? By saying, this is my world, my life, my house, my job, my budget, my food, my stuff, my street, my car, my things, my body, and worshiped your own autonomy, worshiped your own authority, rather than recognizing all things have been created by, through, and for Christ. My friends, what does God do with us? Discard us like leftovers that have been in the refrigerator for too long? Like trash that we put on the curb that maybe just taken away? No. Christ comes into his own creation so that Christ, who is at the center of all creation, at the center of Christ and at the center of his life and purpose, is the cross for sinners, that we might be redeemed by believing and by trusting in him. Consider that at the center of all creation is Christ, and specifically Christ on the cross for you. The hour for which Jesus came was the cross for you. If you come to God today, confess your sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the center of all creation is Christ on the cross crucified for your sin. At the center of all creation is Jesus rising from the dead, having paid with his own blood for your sin, the blood of the cross. That is the great glorification of Christ at the center of creation. All things were created by him and through him and for him, most specifically that cross in his creation, that he might die on it for you and for me and for all who would trust in him today. For through him, it was God's pleasure to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross.
A few things to consider in response to this. Are you right with Christ today? As Bonhoeffer said, all the world is relative to Christ. But are you right with Christ? Or are you under God's judgment because of sin? Refusing to acknowledge that this is Jesus' world. Refusing to repent. Refusing to confess that you have sin in your own heart, in your own thoughts, in your mind against others and against God. If you are right with the world, but wrong with Christ, you actually are entirely wrong with the entire world. Christ on the cross is the center of all creation. It doesn't matter how alone you are, how oppressed you are by the world. It doesn't matter how fallen or weak you might be. If you are right by Christ, you are right relative to the rest of the world. It's better to be right with Christ and opposed to the world because Christ is the center of all creation. His crucifixion for your sin is the purpose for which he has come and created all things. Come to God today with faith in Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as the center of creation. The cross is the center of your hope. If you miss Christ on the cross, you miss the center of all creation. If you believe and you hope in the cross, you have what is at the center of everything in the world. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power will uphold your forgiveness by the word of the cross and the resurrection. Kevin DeYoung says this, the question is not whether we will bend the knee before Christ. That will happen, as Paul says in Philippians 2. The question is whether we will do it like a defeated foe when it's too late or if we do it now, humbly asking for mercy. Because all the world is relative to Christ and all the world will answer to him having been his creation. Answer to him today. Go to him in prayer and just ask for his forgiveness. Trust that Jesus is the center of creation and the cross is the center of his intention for you. Let me ask you too, what person and events are you responding to in your life throughout the week? When you get into an argument with your spouse, what person or event are you responding to? When someone fails you, what event are you responding to? When your boss kind of presses down on you or maybe mistreats you or doesn't give you that promotion that you hoped for, how do you respond to them? What event are you responding to? Let me say that if this is Christ's world and if the cross is at the center, then all times and people have come and exist as relative to Christ. Every argument is about Christ. Every sin is about Christ. Every trouble is about Christ. At times when people come to me for marriage counseling, they describe events in their marriage. Well, he said this, and she said this, and he spent that money. She, she is always doing things like this. From time to time, I'll just ask her, what's the most important event that's ever happened to your marriage? What's the most important event that's ever happened for the sake of your marriage or in your marriage? It's because all things are relative to Christ. The event that we ought to be responding to more than any other, the event that is at the center of all existence, is Christ on the cross for your spouse. Christ on the cross for you. Christ on the cross for your boss. Christ on the cross for sinners. Now, how often we spend our lives responding to peripheral events only. We get so easily offended. Everything's about us. 
By the way, that's kind of how offense works. When it's about us, we get easily offended. But when it's about Christ, we can see that actually I'm just in Jesus' world. He has extended this incredible forgiveness to me. Might I extend it to someone else also? This is exactly how Paul talks in Colossians chapter 3. He takes the gospel, the center of creation, the cross itself, and he uses it for how we ought to treat other people. Base the events of people complaining against you and sinning against you on the event of the cross, the central event in history. Compare that event to that event. He says it like this in Colossians 3, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The worst enemy that you have at the center of the world they live in is Christ crucified. Parents, when you're parenting your children, don't respond only to tiffs and tantrums as if that's the main event that's happening in your household. Help our children understand, interpret themselves and their events in their lives as relative to Christ. Sweetheart, when, when we consider what your brother did in the light of Jesus, that event, how does it change this event? I know it still hurts that he, that he hit you. I'm not debating that fact, but how do you respond? There's another event back here that it really is the center of your whole life and the center of all history to respond to. Jesus died for him for that. Parents, when your children are in sin, remind them that you are not the center of your child's world. Don't discipline your children as if you are the center of their world and that their greatest sin is that they have frustrated you. That they've sinned against you by bothering you, by being too loud to you. I'm preaching to myself. The center of their life is Christ. And the center of Christ is a cross for them. Discipline instruct with a cross in your language, in your heart, in your mind. To close as a church, Christ is really all we have to offer. The ministry of Christ, the words of Christ, the death of Christ, the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the hope of Christ. Our church really never had one more thing than that and no less. Don't think about too much about religion and busyness for the sake of busyness. Think about Christ. That's the one thing that we have. Those who do see Jesus, John Stott shares in this book, The Incomparable Christ, those who do see Jesus and surrender to him, acknowledge him to be at the center of their conversion experience in their lives. Take as an example Sandu Singh, born in 1889 into an affluent Sikh family in India. He grew up to hate Christianity as, in his view, a foreign religion. He expressed his hostility at the age of 15 by publicly burning a copy of one of the Gospels. But three days afterward, he was converted through a vision of Christ. And later, though still in his teens, he determined to become a sadhu, a wandering holy man and preacher. On one occasion, Sundar Singh visited a Hindu college 
and was accosted rather aggressively by a lecturer who asked him what he had found in Christianity that he did not have in his old religion. Singh says, I have found Christ. Yes, the lecturer said, I know impatiently. But what particular principle or doctrine have you found that you did not have before? The particular thing that I have found, replied Sundar Singh, is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise because you are so good and so kind in Christ to us. And we take a moment just to recognize and remember that all the world is relative to Christ. He is before all things. All things are by, through, and for Him. And at the center of Christ is the cross. The hour that He came was to die for our sins. Thank you, Father, for the cross. Thank you for Christ dying for our sins, raising from the grave to bring us to new life. Pray that you would help us here to leave today in faith, in mind and spirit, trusting you. I want to ask that you take just a moment just to quietly reflect and to pray on your own what we've heard and sung and preached here.